Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife, everyone. Uh, We're very pleased to have Dr. Julie Sosa here with us today, who is, I should now say, I guess, the prior chief of endocrine surgery at Duke University um, in about to be the new chair at University of California, San Francisco Department of Surgery, effective 1 April. She's a professor of surgery and medicine, and she specializes in endocrine surgery, something that we're going to talk a little bit more about today. And for those of you who know, she's uh, widely published and just everywhere. She's been a PI or investigator on a number of clinical trials for advanced thyroid cancer. She's the deputy editor of JAMA Surgery and on the editorial boards of a wide range of peer-reviewed surgical journals to include the Annals of Surgery, Annals of Surgical Oncology, Endocrine, Hormones and Cancer, Journal of Thyroid Research. She's the editor-in-chief of World Journal and Surgery um, and the Journal of Surgical Research. So, uh, Dr. Sosa, thanks so much for joining us on Behind the Knife. Thanks for having me. So we always like to start out these with talking a little bit about, about tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, where were you born? Uh, where did you train? And how did the point it come that you are about to join UCSF? Uh, so again, thanks so much for, for having me. It's a great privilege to be uh, on Behind the Knife. Um, so uh, my path um, to San Francisco certainly has not been a direct one. Um, I think uh, uh, my career trajectory has been one where um, if the shortest path from A to B is a straight line, I took took the longest path, uh, the most serpentine path, but I would argue maybe the most fun and interesting path. So um, I was born uh, in uh, Montreal, so I'm an immigrant, and uh, my dad's from Central America. Uh, my mom's Canadian, uh, and uh, I moved uh, to the United States um, when I was in elementary school, and I grew up in upstate New York. Um, I uh, I went to Princeton, and uh, I thought I wanted to be um, a journalist, um, so I did a ton of activities around media and journalism. Um, that's print journalism, of course, now defunct. Um, when I was in college, um, but I sort of uh, became enamored with economics and, and, and public policy um, when I was an undergraduate. And so I wound up majoring in the Wilson School, Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. And I anticipated a career uh, in labor economics. So I wrote my senior thesis together with the president of Princeton, a man by the name of William Bowen, who is like my first mentor, and he very much sort of influenced what I wanted to be uh, because I really wanted to be like him, and he was a labor economist. So I took two years off after graduation, and I went to England, uh, to Oxford, and I did a graduate degree in demography, and most people in the United States don't even know what that is. I'm not sure I know what that is. (laughs) And um, I wrote a book together with President Bowen um, about the Uh, labor market for academic PhDs. So that is PhDs in the arts and sciences. In other words, I um, came up with projections about what my 
uh, um, career prospects would be over the next 25 years. And interesting enough, they looked pretty grim. This was back in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, at that time, many PhDs were driving taxi cabs because they couldn't get a job. And the median time to the doctorate um, was on the order of 10 to 15 years. And it was a wake-up call for me. I, I sort of got cold feet, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm training so hard. I'm going to do this Ph.D. in labor economics, and I'm going to finish unemployed. And so I changed paths again, and uh, I said, I need to do something where I'm going to actually have a job. Um, and so I decided to go to medical school, so very late, um, and at that point, um, I was sort of a little behind in that I hadn't taken the MCAT and all of this. And so I applied basically to one medical school, to Johns Hopkins, because at that time uh, they were very progressive and did not require um, an MCAT. And I got in. I was blessed and got in. And so I went to Baltimore, where I spent the next 13 years. And uh, when I was a medical student, I, I sort of emulated my dad. My dad was an internist, a cardiologist, so I decided to become an internist. And I prepared all my applications and did all my, all my clerkships and electives around becoming an internist. And in, like, September of my fourth year, um, I did a, a sub-internship in surgery and... Uh, I fell in love with it. Uh, and after about a week of doing that, I was on the GI Gold service, which was the chair service, Dr. Cameron's service. Uh, I went and I met with Dr. Cameron and, and the leadership of the Department of Surgery and said, you know what, I, I want to be a surgeon. And he said, well, why do you want to be a surgeon? How do you know you want to be a surgeon? And uh, there was only, there's only one way I could have described it, and there's only one way I can describe it now, and that is... Being in the operating room is sort of, for me, like being on a roller coaster. It is the thrill. It is the excitement. Um, and I'm an endocrine surgeon, so I don't know. It's the cortisol, the catecholamines that are secreted um, in an operating room when you love what you're doing. And there's nothing like it for me. Um, so it's not the traditional answer to the question, but for me, it, it is the right answer to the question. And so I pivoted. 90, uh, 90 degrees and uh, decided to apply in general surgery. And uh, I, I stayed at Johns Hopkins. So I did the Halstead residency. So I did that for about for five years of clinical training, two years as a Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar. And I finished as a really well-trained patobiliary pancreatic surgeon, as most people then did when they finished the Halstead residency. And um, I took my first job at Yale um, as a surgical oncologist, pancreatic surgeon. And uh, I did that for maybe, mm, maybe two or three years when I really came to terms with the fact that, um, you know, I, I, I didn't love what I was doing. And what I was doing clinically did not mesh well with what I was doing on the research side, which was definitely focused in endocrine surgery and also in health services research, which really brought together the training I'd had in labor economics and um, uh, in my undergraduate uh, career um, and as a Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar. And so 
another turning point in my life and about face is I then recreated myself much more as an endocrine surgeon. And really over the last decade, I have evolved um, into being an endocrine surgeon and surgeon scientist whose research portfolio is still very much focused, I would say, in health services research, although I, um, I do try to um, explore many different uh, methodologies in basic science, stem cell science, translational science, clinical trials, and finally health services research. So, um, you know, my, sort of long run for a short slide to your question of how did you get to where you are now? And I guess the life lessons I've learned are that, you know, sometimes the longer path uh, makes you an older person, but I think it makes your life experiences much richer and you come to appreciate more what you're doing because you've explored and done things that you realize you don't love to do. And it makes you appreciate what you have, I think, uh, a lot more. Um, I'd also say that, you know, a lesson I've learned is that serendipity is an incredibly powerful force in life. And, you know, the only way I could have taken some of these terms, twists and turns in my career is through chance and chance meetings with individuals who really changed the way I think and, and what I do and whether it was William Bowen at, at Princeton or, John Cameron at um, Johns Hopkins. But, um, you know, I think the third thing is it is serendipitous encounters with mentors and people who really um, change, you know, your life and and how you think about what you do. So, um, yeah, that's how I sort of wound up here. I think, uh, medical training at John Hopkins and studying under John Cameron to become uh, an, an endocrine surgeon is probably the best backup plan uh, as a way of, as a way of paying the bills I've ever heard. So, so congratulations on all that. <laughs> well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you honestly, um, I think um, um, learners today are in many ways much more um, mature than, um, you know, we were in the past, where I think in the past you followed a track because of not static inertia, but kinetic inertia. You know, you're on this path. You just sort of follow the path of least resistance. You did what um, others were doing around you. You did what those more senior to you suggested was the best path. And it was an excellent path, but in the end, it may not have been the right path for you. And and I would just say, I think learners today, maybe millennials, I don't know, are in many ways much more mature and that they um, seem to be more attuned to sort of what's important in life, whether it's personal or professional. And I suspect are less likely to have made um, 
not mistakes, but some of the decisions I, I made in my career that in the end, I certainly don't regret. Um, but, you know, it just took me a little longer. Uh, Dr. Sosa, I think that leads perfectly into discussing your recent article that was just published in uh, JAMA Surgery discussing uh, risk factors for resident attrition. Um, and our listeners can go listen to the JAMA Surgery podcast about this with you and uh, Dr. Amelia Cochran, uh, or I'm sorry, Amalia Cochran, and if they want to get the full details. But could you just give our listeners uh, you know, a brief breakdown of, of why you guys are studying this and what you found and uh, and if, if you were a program coordinator or program director um, at UCSF for the surgery program, how would you uh, make some changes? Yeah, well, I wish um, I had the keys to the kingdom, um, but uh, I'm not sure any of us do. You know, I, I would say that um, I think, you know, graduate surgical education has changed a lot over uh, the last 20 years. And I would say that um, I think many, most, maybe even all the changes have been good ones, whether it is the elimination of the pyramidal training program, you know, where, you know, seven would start, but three would finish residency, or whether it was the um, imposition of the 80-hour work week. I think uh, many of us who went through the training system before these changes were enacted would, would say that these are great changes. Um, the problem, however, is I think that many of these changes were made in a non-evidence-based way, and um, they were made because they made sense, but they didn't necessarily address or reflect the concerns of the consumers, which is the learners, the, the interns and the residents who are going through these training programs. And the reason I propose this is that, you know, our work stemmed from the observation that in spite of all these changes, about one in five um, uh, residents in general surgery training programs in the United States drop out. They dropped out at that rate 20 years ago, and they are still dropping out at that rate. And, um, you know, I would say that uh, general surgery has an attrition rate that is out of line with the attrition rate observed in virtually every other career path. So it's an outlier, including an outlier compared to other surgical training programs, whether it is orthopedics, gynecology, oncology, otolaryngology. And so our work really stemmed from the fact that, you know, attrition, I would argue, is too high. So how can we potentially reduce it? And I believe strongly that um, changes should be informed by evidence, but particularly changes should reflect the perspectives, the expectations, the attitudes of learners. Um, um, and so the work we recently published, and we now have a track record of publication, is around um, a, a cohort of interns um, who um, uh, entered uh, residency in 2007. And we then uh, followed them over the next nine years through June of 2016. 
And um, we collected information about them at baseline. We asked them about their expectations and their perspectives around their anticipated uh, residency. And then we looked at how they dropped out. And the paper that was just published in JAMA Surgery and that has garnered, um, you know, a, a good deal of attention, and I think appropriately, is that we looked at um, the survival curve, meaning when um, are people dropping out? And not surprisingly, what we found is that the spike in attrition is um, highest in the first year, so in internship year. And I think many of us who are educators would say, well, that probably makes sense that attrition in internship year is highest. Why? Um, you know, perhaps because we're not selecting uh, 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 residents in a perfect way. Maybe Residents realize very early on that the fit is not good either with their program or with general surgery, and so they drop out. So while um, the uh, rate of attrition in internship was higher than we expected, it maybe wasn't so surprising. What really surprised us, however, is that um, attrition continued into um, the late portion of residency, meaning um, postgraduate years six and seven for those who um, uh, did academic programs and took years off to pursue research. Um, and then in clinical years four and five for those who went straight through. And what we saw is this late attrition was um, uh, focused largely in three groups, um, women, um, Hispanic residents and residents who are training in larger academic programs. And um, here we became concerned. And we're concerned because late attrition suggests that both training programs and learners are expending a ton of energy and a ton of resources, and ultimately are coming up short because these residents are dropping out either to pursue other specialties in medicine or to pursue careers outside of medicine. And I would argue here that, you know, um, this late attrition is a problem and potentially needs um, a, a uh, intervention, um, or certainly additional research to better understand why this is happening and to figure out how to prevent it. Well, excellent. I think with that, we'll, uh, we'll start to transition into our, what we call our dissection of the day, which is a, a section of the podcast where we dive a little more in detail uh, about an area of your expertise. Um, so let's get into some uh, thyroid cancer. Um, if you could, let's just, it, from, you know, kind of the the you know thousand yard view of approaching a patient that's new to you with thyroid cancer. How do you counsel that patient, and how do you? What are some, kind of some big picture principles of guiding the workup? You know the biochemical workup, the imaging, um, and how do you approach getting that patient to the operating room? Okay, well I'm going to focus the discussion around differentiated thyroid cancer. So um, you know there's been an explosion and. 
in thyroid cancer diagnoses in the United States, you know, incidence is up about 300% in three decades. And it's largely being driven by an increasing incidence of papillary thyroid cancer. And this is an interesting interesting and important area, not because of the epidemiology and public health implications, but it's also interesting because there's a lot of controversy about how these patients should be managed. I think we all agree you start always in in medicine and surgery with a history and physical exam. The patient almost always presents with a nodule. Um, the nodule is either identified on physical examination or it's found incidentally more and more based on diagnostic testing, cross-sectional imaging, ultrasound being done for other purposes. So the first thing you do is look at the ultrasound, look at the imaging, and risk stratify the nodule based on its size and on its ultrasonographic appearance. Um, If The nodule meets criteria for biopsy. A fine needle aspiration should be performed, and um, uh, uh, the patient should have a TSH checked to exclude um, thyroid dysfunction. Uh, We use the Bethesda classification system to um, grade the risk associated with the cytology uh, result. Um, sometimes, most of the time, it's benign, um, some, which is a Bethesda 2 lesion. Sometimes it is diagnostic for malignancy, so that's a Bethesda 6 lesion. But the problem is about a third of biopsies today come back in an indeterminate category, which is a Bethesda 3, Bethesda 4, or Bethesda 5 category. And the question nowadays is, what do you do with these patients? In the past, we took them all to the operating room. And the problem is the majority of these patients don't have cancer. And if we could figure out better how to avoid an operation, we would be able to reduce the morbidity that patients are being exposed to around complications associated with thyroid surgery. And so increasingly, we're using molecular testing um, which uh, takes these indeterminate cytology cytologies and then risk stratifies them into those lesions that are more likely to be benign and those lesions that are more likely to be malignant and um, um, and then further advise patients whether they can continue surveillance if the molecular testing suggests it is more likely benign or recommend surgery if it is more likely um, to be Um, malignant. Uh, And there are two molecular tests that are uh, commercially available and that really dominate the market. One is the Affirma GEC, gene expression classifier, which is moving to become the new GSC. Um, And the second is the Thyroseq um, test from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. It is coming out with a new version 3.0, and that'll be coming out, um, has come out, and um, both these tests will be described in publications anticipated later this year. Um, I think the other controversy around differentiated thyroid cancer and its management is how much surgery to do. And uh, many of my colleagues not in endocrine surgery think that it's endocrine surgeons arguing about how many angels dance on the head of a pin, and that may be correct. Um, But there are two areas of controversy in the surgical management of differentiated thyroid cancer that is deemed to be low risk. One is should patients undergo thyroid lobectomy or total thyroidectomy? 
And the other is, should a prophylactic central lymph node dissection uh, be performed for those patients who don't have clinical or radiographic evidence for metastatic disease? So I guess that's it in a nutshell. So Dr. Sosa, that's really interesting. Uh, And on those controversial points, we'd eventually like to ask you where you stand on those two points. But before we get there, uh, you mentioned the genetic testing, the molecular markers. Uh, For those of us who are less familiar with this technology, uh, what sort of markers, what sort of genetic sequences kind of raise red flags that this is more likely to be a malignant as opposed to a benign process? Yeah, uh, it's a moving target. And the important thing to understand about uh, the molecular testing that is commercially available is that it is imperfect. And while it can help us to refine recommendations that we make to patients, in the end, recommendations still fall into a gray zone. So the molecular testing can make it a darker shade of gray, or it can make it a lighter shade of gray, but in the end, we generally still reside in a gray area. But I would argue probably today, most of medicine is really still gray. Um, You know, there are some markers like the BRAF V600E mutation um, that is virtually pathognomonic for having papillary thyroid cancer. And many of us believe that if you have the BRAFV600E mutation, you not only will have a diagnosis of papillary thyroid cancer, but you're more likely to have more aggressive form of the disease with associated increased risk of um, recurrent uh, or persistent disease, metastatic disease, or maybe even a survival disadvantage. Um, um, combination of mutations is also becoming more and more um, important where if we combine two different mutations, um, the uh, impact is greater on patients in terms of a survival um, disadvantage. Um, you know, um, RET PTC, for instance, is a mutation associated with papillary thyroid cancer. It's also generally associated with um, uh, uh, radiation um, exposure. Um, it is, though, something that is declining in incidence, suggesting that it can't explain this increase in incidence of papillary thyroid cancer. It has declined in incidence while the BRAF V600E mutation is increasing in incidence. And we really don't understand um, why, why that uh, is. And it could be that there is, um, you know, interaction between different mutations or that these mutations are associated with other things that we have yet to understand, whether it is obesity, whether it is environmental exposures in the exposome, we really, we really don't know. So moving on to the surgical therapy and understanding there's a lot more uh, into the weeds that determines this. Can you talk a little bit about the role for hemithyroidectomy versus a total thyroidectomy, those patients with thyroid cancer? And if so, who is a candidate for each? Yeah. So until uh, 2015, um, uh, the American Thyroid Association guidelines 
uh, were very definitive in uh, the surgery they recommended. And um, I'm going to focus my discussion around um, 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 papillary thyroid microcarcinomas and low-risk differentiated thyroid cancer, which are the areas of controversy. I think most of us agree um, agreed then and agree now that for intermediate and high-risk cancers, total thyroidectomy should virtually always be performed. So until 2015, the recommendation per the ATA was that papillary thyroid microcarcinomas, that is tiny tumors under one centimeter in size, should have lobectomy performed, barring there being contralateral uh, nodules, barring there being a history of radiation or a family history of papillary thyroid cancer. That changed in 2015, where the current ATA guidelines continue to recommend thyroid lobectomy for papillary thyroid microcarcinomas, but where um, a little caveat was introduced at the start of the guideline that said, if surgery was going to be chosen. So for the first time, the door was opened a crack to permit active surveillance as an alternative to lobectomy for tiny papillary thyroid cancers under a centimeter. In terms of low-risk differentiated thyroid cancers, until 2015, the recommendation was for total thyroidectomy. And that was largely based on a pivotal study published by Carl Billamoria and colleagues uh, in 2007. Um, emerging data, however, suggests that um, survival is likely equivalent for patients who have um, thyroid lobectomy or total thyroidectomy. And again, low-risk differentiated thyroid cancer for your listeners are those cancers one to four centimeters in size without extrathyroidal extension and without evidence of metastatic disease. Emerging evidence suggesting equivalent survival, but clearly total thyroidectomy associated with more morbidity, specifically nerve injury and hypoparathyroidism, resulted in new ATA guidelines that suggest patient preference should guide decision-making in consultation with the healthcare team. And the alternatives are lobectomy and total thyroidectomy. So for every patient, I'm sure there's a right and a wrong answer, but that answer should be driven by discussions that are had between the healthcare team and the patient and the patient preferences around risk and benefit. So those are the uh, two acceptable strategies for low-risk DTC. What's my bias? Well, um, you know, I, I think a lot depends on um, um, on the patient. And I very much in my own practice put the patient in the epicenter of um, decision-making. And the consultation is really intended to empower the patient to make the better decision for, um, for them, for those patients who put greater stock around the risks of surgery, meaning hypoparathyroidism, RLN injury, um, the need for thyroid hormone replacement, um, lobectomy may be the superior strategy. For those patients, though, who are more concerned about ongoing surveillance of the contralateral um, lobe and who may be concerned about a slightly higher risk of recurrence, again, equivalent survival, but slightly higher risk of recurrence, 
then total thyroidectomy may be the superior strategy. So I'm not trying to wiffle waffle, but um, I tend to be a less is more person in the setting of low risk differentiated thyroid cancer. Do we now? Do we have any idea on um, what that rate is of recurrence, or how many you know how much multifocal uh, disease are we missing? Um, you know, maybe subclinical or sub you know uh, multifocal disease that we're missing by doing a hemithyroid. Do we have any idea what those numbers are? Well, the risk of recurrence in the setting of papillary thyroid cancer is, um, you know, not that small. It's probably 20 to 30 percent of all comers with a diagnosis of differentiated thyroid cancer, papillary thyroid cancer, will have a recurrence in their lifetime. Many of us argue around whether it is really a recurrence or whether, in fact, it is really a um, whether it is really persistent um, disease. Um, I think for those of us who say that um, lobectomy is an appropriate alternative strategy to total thyroidectomy, would say that even if microscopic disease is left behind, either in the contralateral lobe or in lymph nodes, if a prophylactic central lymph node dissection is not performed. What does that really mean if there is no clinical impact on the patient? And if, for example, we're also saying that we can actively surveil papillary thyroid microcarcinomas. So I think that it is, um, it is a moving target. It is an ongoing discussion. I think we need to continue to collect evidence around recurrence. Um, and I would tell you, I suspect you will see data emerging over the next six to 12 months that is either in the peer review process or about to enter the peer review process that will try to answer your excellent question. Well, that was a fantastic breakdown of thyroid cancer. Now we're going to dive a little deeper. We're going to go into the tips and tricks section. And one thing is residents nowadays, for the most part, are probably getting their minimums uh, as far as thyroid and parathyroid surgery goes. So I feel like we're probably a little uh, less familiar with this than uh, other episodes we may have. One, one thing we want to discuss with you is what is the role of a central neck dissection in thyroid cancer? And can you take us through that, uh, how you perform that? So central lymph node dissection <coughs> performed therapeutically. So performed for uh, clinical or radiographic evidence of metastatic disease is not controversial. We all agree to do a therapeutic central lymph node dissection. The disagreement is about um, prophylactic central lymph node dissection um, uh, um, for low-risk lesions. And, um, you know, I will tell you, most of us would say you need a randomized controlled trial uh, to define standard of care. I think it is unlikely that that randomized control trial will ever be performed around this question. It would be prohibitively expensive, require too many patients, and would require decades of follow-up. So I think we're going to have to make this decision um, using things like systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And a number of these have been performed. And basically what they show is that there is a um, a non-significant difference in recurrence rates between total thyroidectomy and total thyroidectomy with prophylactic central lymph node dissection. And there is also non-significant differences with regard to the rates of permanent hypoparathyroidism and recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, meaning the two strategies um, have equivalent um, morbidity stats. So it really becomes the dealer's choice to the best of our knowledge right now. 
Um, what do I do in my practice? So I take a selective approach, and that is the approach recommended by the American Thyroid Association guidelines. Um, I am more likely to do a prophylactic central lymph node dissection in three settings. In those patients who have T3 or T4 lesions, so those patients who have gross extrathyroidal extension of their tumors or tumors over four centimeters in size, if there is evidence of lateral compartment uh, metastatic disease, so skip metastases are relatively rare. So if you have lateral compartment metastases, I'm pretty certain you also must have central compartment metastases, even if I can't see them. And the last setting in which I will do a prophylactic central lymph node dissection is if my colleagues in endocrinology and nuclear medicine tell me that they are more likely to give radioactive iodine if information about the central compartment is provided to them. So those would be the three settings in which I would be more likely to do prophylactic um, central lymph node dissection. And can you talk us uh, through that procedure? Yeah, so um, uh, you have to basically extirpate um, all of the lymph nodes in the central compartment, which is the level six uh, of the neck. So it goes from the hyoid bone all the way down to the infraclavicular area. And we are now saying that the superior mediastinum, meaning level seven lymph nodes, probably should be included in that package. You take your dissection all the way out to the carotid sheath laterally and all the way in to the trachea medially. So you're uh, uh, extubating on the right and or the left, um, the pretracheal, prelaryngeal, many would argue the retro uh, pharyngeal uh, lymph nodes um, in this packet. When you perform this operation, it is absolutely essential to skeletonize the recurrent laryngeal nerve and to try to dissect, identify and dissect out primarily the inferior parathyroid glands, which are put at risk. And you not only need to identify and preserve the parathyroid glands themselves, but also the vascular pedicles going to those um, parathyroid glands. So the little arteries coming off typically the inferior thyroid arteries. So it is maintaining, you know, vasculature and the parathyroid glands um, um, themselves. So that's pretty complicated. Um, and so, you know, embarking on them potentially comes with increased risk of transient hypoparathyroidism. But as I told you, in the end, the uh, risk of permanent uh, morbidity is not statistically significantly different based on pooled analyses. Well, that's been great, Dr. Sosa. Uh, it's a procedure that we don't get to see all too often, all the time, uh, if we're not doing endocrine surgery on a daily basis. And so we really appreciate you talking us through that. Uh, so we like to close out all our segments with the final five. Uh, they're just five short questions for our listeners to get to know you a little bit more personally. And so I'd like to lead with the first. Uh, do you listen to music in the operating room? And if so, what's in your iPod? Um, uh, I always listen to music. And I know they tell you don't say always and never, but I always listen uh, to music. Um, I have everything that goes from uh, remote paths. So I love the 80s. Love Michael Jackson, love Prince, love the Coors, 
And uh, I take it all the way um, up to the present. Um, love everything from pink. Um, I have one Justin Bieber for my pediatric patients. <laughs> um, and right now I'm listening to um, a song about Durham, especially as my time here comes to a close called North CAC. Wow, that is quite eclectic. Uh, just because I'm curious now, uh, who are your pediatric patients? What disease process do they have? Uh, most of them have thyroid disease. So many of them have MEN2A syndrome or familial medullary thyroid um, cancer. Um, and so they run in age from less than one for MEN2B patients all the way up into adolescence. And uh, you've got to have music for them when they come into the world. <laughs> Well, that's a good choice for sure with uh, with the Beebs, who just celebrated his 24th birthday not too long I ago. I know, right? Happy so, birthday, Beebs. Absolutely. Number two, do you have any uh, hobbies, talents, or interests outside of the operating room? Um, I am uh, an avid spinner. So um, I use it probably, I initially used it as an excuse to get out of work and to go home. Um, So whatever it takes. But um, now it's become a passion, um, maybe an addiction. Um, So um, three or four days a week, you can find me um, uh, spinning, which is also how I've learned to supplement my soundtrack in the operating room. Is that uh, at home or uh, at the spin studio or where do you do that? No, I, I, I don't make enough uh, to afford Peloton. So I go to the spin (laughs) studio. Awesome. All uh, right, number three. Do you have a um, favorite trip or a favorite vacation or someplace awesome you've been that uh, you can share with us? Uh, so yeah, um, I uh, I love the beach, and um, I love the Carolina beach, and it's something I'm going to miss. So many things about North Carolina and uh, Durham, but one of them is um, living near the beach, um, a beach where you can. Uh, well, sometimes fend off sharks, but go to the go into the water, enjoy the white sand, and there's nothing more beautiful than the Carolina beaches. And uh, I'm going to miss that very much. Great. And you kind of uh, discussed this already, but what would you be doing right now if you were not in medicine? Um, I, I wish I could say it was sitting in South Florida, sipping on a cocktail, but um, I, I think I'd be working probably just as hard, but in some form of science and innovation and discovery, probably around economics. So I would imagine I'd probably be a labor economist, a professor of economics at an academic institution, doing research, um, teaching learners, um, yeah, and feeling really fulfilled. And would you have driven taxi cabs to get there? Definitely. There's no stopping me. (laughs) Uh, So finally, to close out, if you could go back in time and see yourself on the first day of internship, what advice would you give yourself? I think it is to know yourself really, really well and to know um, what excites you what your passion is and, um, and to follow it regardless of what others say is the correct answer. The correct answer is defined by each individual. 
Um, I will tell you, though, that while the, the path to San Francisco has been incredibly long and circuitous, um, going all the way back, this was truly my dream job. And um, I guess what I would say is, you know, miracles can happen. And, um, you know, my going to San Francisco as a member of the Department of Surgery and the leader of that department way back then was my dream. And fulfilling it is an incredible excitement for me. Well, Dr. Sosa, thanks so much again for joining us on Behind the Knife, and congratulations not only on the recent uh, editor-in-chief of World Journal of Surgery, but, you know, as well as becoming the new chair at uh, UCSF Department of Surgery. And uh, I, I bet the, uh, the fellows would say out there, welcome to the left's coast. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much. Until next time, dominate the day.